Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have given us everything that we need in Christ. Lord, not only did he die to take away the guilt of our sin, but he died to give us his righteousness. And Lord, so as a people who are gathered together this morning who have had their sin, all of their sin removed in Christ, and who have had the righteousness of Christ given to us, and Lord, not just that, but, but you continue to give us and give us and give us. Lord, you've given us your very son, And so, Lord, as a people who have received everything that we need in Christ, Lord, would you help us to be transformed in Christ, to follow his example. Lord, to put off stealing in all of its forms, and Lord, to put on hard work so that we can give to those who are in need. Lord, would you help us to love one another and to love all of those with, in whom we, with whom we come into contact Lord, with the love of Christ that we have received so that you might be glorified in and through us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2013, Kelowna had the highest crime rates in the nation, according to Stats Canada. While crime rates across the country had gone down, in Kelowna they'd actually gone up. They'd increased 6%. Uh, from, the, from the previous year, it, gave it, it had the highest crime rate out of the 33 metropolitan areas that were surveyed. Now the RCMP attributed the spike, in, the spike of this um, to, especially to that of property offenses, especially theft. I wonder if the word, uh, I would have said prior to this morning, if the word had gotten out about the, the weather in Kelowna and that had attracted, had attracted more criminals. But in the report, it had shown that, that it said, well, it's what had gone down in the rest of the country, in Kelowna, it had gone up. When the 2015 report, two years later, crime was up across the nation. There was almost 1.9 million reported criminal code incidents in Canada in that year. And that was up again 6% from, from 2014. The good news for Kelowna is that Kelowna no longer has the dubious honor of having the, Christ, the highest crime rate in the country. It now has the second highest crime rate in the country. Sometimes you have to really look pretty hard for the silver lining. But, but crime is, is a massive problem, not just in Kelowna, but, but really all around the world. Theft and, and drug offenses and sexual offenses and violence and, and, and all of these things permeate all cultures. But what's the solution? How should we deal with, with the problem of crime in our culture? Tougher laws? More policing? Education? Somebody that I know posted on Facebook that last week that the, 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 the problem is that to, to a host of, of societal problems in general is the, the breakdown of the family. He says that the, one of the major root causes of the problems in society is just that, a breakdown of the nuclear family. Now all of these tougher laws and, and more policing and education and, and more of a focus on family might make a difference. 
but there is a much deeper and more foundational problem to not just the problems of crime, but to all of the problems that face our society. And they saw it in Canada in 1971. But it actually started out five years before that, in 1966, in, in Ebenezer Baptist Church in Saskatoon. Ebenezer Baptist Church was in many ways a, a typical Baptist church. Pastor McLeod describes the church upon his arrival. He says, so when I got there, I thought, if we could just get this church on the road. They love God to a point. They serve God with some reserve. They praise God, but with a lot of restraint. But they were an average church. But then Pastor McLeod and some of the other leaders began to pray. They got together on Saturday evening and they began to, to pray for revival. And, and of course, they, they had prayed before, but, but now they really began to pray. And soon the congregation joined in. And it came to a point when the entire church would attend the, the, their prayer meetings. The, the, the prayer meeting was actually better attended than the Sunday service. Now, I think it should be both, but, but <coughs> hear this. Everybody was going to the prayer meeting. And people signed up for time slots so that there would be prayer all the way around the clock. The 24-7 people were praying. And then soon other churches began to join in in Saskatoon. But then suddenly, on Wednesday, October the 13th, 1971, it began. Ralph and Louis Sutera, the twin evangelists from the U.S., were holding an evangelistic service. And the Spirit of God began to regenerate hearts. By Saturday night, the church was so full that, that people couldn't move. They couldn't physically fit more people into the church building. And it spread quickly to other churches. Then they outgrew their church building, and then they outgrew the, the next bigger church building, and the next one, and the next one after that. It got so big that they had to hold their meetings in the 2200-seat Centennial Auditorium. What was supposed to have been a week and a half long evangelistic outreach, outreach lasted for seven and a half weeks. Thousands of people were born again. Church members who had previously thought that they were saved were genuinely saved. <clears throat> there was also the unchurched. Many people who had never really heard the gospel were saved. Drug addicts and the down and out were saved. Lawyers and psychologists and professionals and farmers and, and laborers were saved. Now that bore immediate fruit in Saskatoon. People who had stolen things would seek opportunities to, to confess that and to make it right. One farmer went to his neighbor and said, he said, York, I, I've stolen a cow from you. Please forgive me. I will replace her. Well, his neighbor replied, you need not replace her. I stole one from you as well. Please forgive me too. People were, were confessing their sin and were making restitution. A customs officer confessed his dishonesty with, with dutiful goods and paid damages. Swindlers went back to restaurants and hotels and confessed that they, that they had skipped out without paying and paid their bills. The newspaper published an article about the amount of stolen merchandise that was being returned to Sears. Canada Revenue reported that people all over were confessing to having cheated on their taxes. The revival spread to Regina, to Winnipeg, to Vancouver, and even to Kelowna. I've talked with, with Lori Crick about this. He was ministering when, when this happened here. But it had similar effects wherever it went. 
When, when there was revival, society changed. God changed hearts, and so people's lives changed. So if you want the Lord to deal with crime in our society, ask the Lord to work in hearts. Pray to God for revival. Pray to God for revival here in this church and in our city and across our nation and around the world. This is something we need to be praying for. They prayed for fully five years before they really saw any, any significant fruit from this. But here in Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is talking about the practical application of the doctrine that he's described in the first three chapters of this letter. He's describing what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, chapter 4, verse 1. He's explaining how you have, who have learned Christ are to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to be put on and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, Ephesians 4, 22-24. And here in verse 28, Paul is following the same pattern that we've seen over the past few weeks, to put off sinful behavior, to put on righteous behavior, and why? He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So first of all, put off stealing. Paul says, let the thief no longer steal. Let the thief no longer steal. It, it really, it seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? It's, we've talked with the, the kids about the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not steal from Exodus 20.15, but it, 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 sounds, it sounds pretty straightforward. You wouldn't you would really have to talk to a, a church about stealing. But these were really regenerate people. These are people who had been born again, and so the Apostle Paul had to give this admonition. It seems that there's actually stealing taking place in the Ephesian church. It's shocking, isn't it? It really should be shocking to us. It, it should, be, should be just as shocking to us as any of the uh, a host of other sins that take place in the church. Whether it's lying, or gossip, or insults, or pornography, or unforgiveness. We, we need to be shocked by sin in all of its forms that it would take place in the church. That it would take place in our own lives. And we need to zealously fight against sin in every form. Maybe you do not struggle or have not really struggled with, with theft. Maybe that's really not been a problem for you. And, and if not, praise God. Praise God that, that, that you have not been a thief. But if you have, you can also praise God. You can praise God because those sins, though, all of those things that you stole on, all of that guilt for, for whether it's, it's thieving or, or any sin, has been transferred to Jesus Christ. That He bore your guilt for your sin. All of it. That's under the blood of Christ Jesus. And so give thanks. Give thanks and then work to continue to fight against that sin. You know, it's not a matter of, of let go and let God. That's true when it, when it comes to our salvation itself. It is a free gift of God's grace. God working in our hearts all by Himself. But when it comes to our sanctification, when it comes to the, the way that we change and grow, again, we've talked about this many times, we participate with God. God works and we work. 
Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to work according to His good pleasure. And so it is, it is our work and it is God's work. We work because God is at work. But we need to realize that, that, that some people continue to struggle with, with certain sins, while, while others have overcome them altogether, and, and very easily at their conversion. I, I said earlier that, that I, I was a thief. Prior to getting saved, I was a thief. But when I got saved, God completely took away that desire for me. I had no desire anymore to take things that didn't belong to me. Now that might not be the case for everyone. Some people might continue to, to struggle with that sin. I, I continue to struggle with, with other sins. And there are sins that, that I'm not even aware of that, that are still in my life. But whatever it is, we need to seek by God's grace to put it off. Whatever sin you have overcome, remember it is a gift of God's grace. It's a gift of God's grace. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that, that thieves along with a host of other sinners will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, such were some of you. But when it comes to sin in general, in general such were all of you. We were all characterized by sin and by disobedience, by rebellion to God, and by hatred of Him and other people, and by love for ourselves, until Christ came into our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so now, as people have been born again, we work that out. So what was happening here in the Ephesian church? Why, why was this particular issue one that Paul felt he had to address? <coughs> Well, again, not to, to justify the behavior uh, of stealing, but, but I think it would be helpful for us to understand what was going on in, in Ephesus in the, in, in the Greco-Roman period that, when this was written. You need to understand the culture to, to whom this letter was first written a little bit. And remember that, that at this time, there was no social safety net. There was no EI. There was no welfare. And this admonition here was probably directed towards day laborers, and because there was times, when times were hard, that they might, and it probably often did, steal in order to, to get by. Now, the, now this term that, that's used here is, uh, um, but the thief no longer steal, that's the same word both times. Um, it's, it was different forms of the same word. It, it's, it speaks specifically of taking something that, that doesn't belong to you, in the, it's secretly. So it's not talking here about specifically about robbery and forms of violence, uh, violent crime, but, but the principle does apply to all forms of stealing. So whatever forms you, 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 you were stealing, put it off. Don't do it any longer. But I wonder, when, when you hear the, the word stealing, what do you think of? Well, probably the, the obvious ones like theft and, and burglary and, and robbery and shoplifting and fraud and, and pickpocketing, those are the ones that probably first come to mind, but there are other forms of, of stealing that are maybe less obvious. Now, they are still stealing every bit as much as, as anything else, but, but I think quite often what happens is, is Christians, uh, they, they either turn a blind eye to these things in their own lives or they seek somehow to justify it. So thinking of things like pilfering at work, cheating on your taxes, or video and music piracy, or borrowing and not returning, working while on disability benefits, or being on disability benefits or welfare when you're able to work. 
or exaggerating insurance claims. These are still forms of stealing. But another form of stealing is that of stealing time. When you show up late for work or, or clock out early or spend time, waste, wasting time at work when you're, you're supposed to be working and not doing what you're called to do, then it's stealing. You're stealing time from your employer. Even if you're evangelizing or talking about the things of the Lord while you're working, you're stealing from your employer. Even something as good as evangelism here should be happening while you're on the clock. Yes, take those opportunities to talk about those things outside of work or on your breaks, but, but stealing time is still stealing. People try to justify stealing, whatever form that they do. They, they justify media piracy because they say, well, everybody does it. They, they justify cheating on their taxes because they say that, that no one likes paying taxes. With this last one, Paul says, pay taxes to whom taxes are owed. Romans 3.17, and he's referring to the teaching of Jesus, where Jesus said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Or people justify exaggerating, exaggerating insurance claims because they think that the insurance companies rip everybody off. I used to justify stealing using a similar rationalization. I, I even told people that, that even though I stole, the insurance companies pay for it, and, they, and they're thieves themselves, so it really doesn't matter. But, but it's a justification that I was still stealing. Stealing is a violation of social order. Stealing breaks down unity. It undermines fellowship. It destroys fellowship. Because you can't have fellowship with someone you can't trust. But remember, here in this section, the Apostle Paul is talking about how to, to build and to develop Christian unity. But stealing does exactly the opposite. The thief uses his or her hands to take what doesn't belong to them. They're using their hands to tear down fellowship. Now Paul is telling them to use their hands instead to work. There's an old saying that says, idle hands are the devil's workshop. If you aren't busy doing the right thing, you'll be busy doing the wrong thing. It's not enough to stop stealing. You also have to work, Paul says. So put off stealing and put on work. He says, he goes continues in verse 28, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands. Now that word that's translated there, labor, refers to strenuous work that produces fatigue. Strenuous work that produces fatigue. He goes on to say, doing honest work with your own hands. Now, now these things, he's, with these he's not elevating manual labor uh, above other forms of work. He's actually elevating all forms of work. It's good to work hard. Stealing does not take much effort, but labor does. Earlier we talked about the, the revival that started in Saskatoon. Well, and then we showed that the revival leads to an end of stealing. But it doesn't just do that. Revival, re, re, uh, revival also leads to an increase in work. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that revival of religion leads to a revival of the dignity of work. Have you thought about that? The, the dignity of work. Have you thought about the dignity of your work? What we're talking about here is people who are using their talents and their abilities for the glory of God. It, it shows a shift of, of consciousness from, from people who are, are, are not so much 
focused on their, on their leisure, but on their labor. Not on their leisure, but on their labor. These are people who know what it feels like. They know how it feels good to go to bed at the end of a productive day. To be physically or mentally tired after a, after a really productive day. It feels good, doesn't it? Well, throughout the scriptures, we see the value of hard work. Not only do we have the passage before us, but also the, the fourth commandment. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Exodus 29. He, the command there is that, that for six days you should really work hard so that you can enjoy rest on the seventh day. Proverbs 6.6, 6, he says, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise. Proverbs 28.19, Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. Ecclesiastes 3.9-10, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it all your might. 2 Thessalonians 3.11-12, Paul says that, Therefore we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So throughout the Bible we see that, that the actual that hard work is exalted as something that pleases God. Passages, passages like these in the hands of the reformers gave, gave rise to what we refer to as the Protestant work ethic. Probably have heard that term, the Protestant work work ethic. Maybe, I wonder if you've really thought about, about where it came from and, and when it, it happened. I was really helped here by an article uh, from uh, Gene Edward Veith, who's a, he wrote a book called God at Work, and he posted a really good article on the Protestant work ethic on, on Ligonier's website. But he refers in this article to, to an earlier book that was written in 1904 by sociologist Max Weber. It's called The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. And what Weber did was he studied the profound economic growth, social mobility, and cultural change that took place after the Protestant Reformation. Now, while Weber really did not understand the concept of justification by faith alone, he, he really gave some helpful insights. Because he, he credited the Reformation with all of those improvements in the culture. He even concluded that the Reformation had led to, to capitalism and that the good form of capitalism. But you would wonder how? How did the Reformation produce such major changes? Well, the Reformation was, was a, a, a time of revival, a time of revival of true religion as the church turned away from the, the lies of Roman Catholicism and turned back to the, the concept of, again, justification by faith alone. And as people were saved under the under the what's really the gospel, their lives began to change. And as the reformers, as the reformers began to study the word and to expound the word, they, they developed what is known as the, the Reformation doctrine of vocation. A vocation. That not only is our focus to be heavenward, but our religion is actually lived out in the world. These are the, the people who are so heavenly minded that they're of much more earthly good. And so our religion is to affect all of life, our family life, our church life, our work life, and our life in the wider culture. Work was considered to be a vocation. Now vocation, it really just comes from the Latin word calling. 
know, we tend to think of, of things like ministry as a calling. But I, I wonder, do you consider what God has given you to do in this world as a calling? Because it is. When you begin to understand that, that all of your life is lived out as a calling to God, that God has sovereignly placed work before you to do, and, and that you work it out by His grace and for your glory, that you, your, your attitude towards, your, towards things begins to change, towards every work that you do. And it also transforms not just your own life, but it transforms culture. Martin Luther taught that, that we have all been given various tasks and relationships. And so you have vocations in the home. Marriage is a calling. Parenting is a calling. Being a child, uh, having parents rather, is a calling. And so when family neighbors, neighbors begin to understand that, that their roles and, and their relationships are a calling, then it leads to harmony. Those relationships are transformed because you're consciously bringing, pleasing God into those relationships. Similarly, you have vocations in the church. You have elder and, and deacon and congregant and, and all of the various opportunities for ministry that, that take place in the church. When, when people begin to understand that, you no longer have 20% of the people in the church doing 80% of the work. People begin to understand that they all have a right or a responsibility to be serving in the church. People begin to seek to understand their own gifts and then they seek to use them for the glory of God. You also have vocations in the, the wider culture, that of leader and citizen. When communities begin to embrace this, what happens is you see culture transformed. Politicians now see themselves as, as servants who give an answer to God for the way that they have, have exercised and worked out their calling. And citizens will begin to, to have respect for, for politicians as they, as they do that. And, they will, and even if they don't, they still have to have respect and they see that. But they will begin to seek opportunities to serve in the wider community because they understand that they have a, a responsibility as a, call, as a called member of a particular community. So you see that, that when people begin to understand that, that, that all that, that God gives us to do is as a calling, as a vocation, then your life changes and culture changes. John Calvin said that we can take comfort in knowing that no task will be sorted and base, provided you obey your calling in it. And that it will not, it will not shine and be reckoned very precious in God's sight. God is pleased with, with your work. Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. God is glorified. And there's, there's really no separation between the, 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 the religious or the holy and the, the secular in this sense. That whatever work you do, whatever it is that God has called you to do in any sphere you find yourself, that it is for the glory of God and you are to serve Him and to see that as a calling. And so this doctrine of vocation changes every aspect of our lives. It, it, it raises it above the mundane, doesn't it? And it really, it really causes us to, to see the spiritual significance of what we do. We see that all of life is to be lived for the glory of God. And this is because, as Luther emphasized, vocation is not primarily about what we do, but about what God does through us. It's not primarily, your work is not primarily about what you do in whatever sphere. It's not really 
you who's doing it. It's God who's doing it through you. And that's how God is glorified in your family, in your church, in your workplace, in the wider community, because you understand that you are going there as one who's been called of God to go and serve in that place that God has placed you. And He gets the glory. Life explains that, that God gives us this day our daily bread through the vocation of farmers and millers and bakers, and we would add factory workers, truck drivers, grocery store employees, and the hands that prepared our meal. As you sit down after the service to enjoy the fellowship meal, just, just stop and consider for a moment all of the work that has gone into putting that meal before you. From, from the farmer who worked the ground and, and to the, the, the truck driver who delivered it to the, the factory worker who, who produced it into, into whatever form of food you could use to the, the grocery store clerk to the, the person who prepared the food to the person who worked to provide it. Just think about this as, as, as an opportunity to give thanks. To realize that God has used each one of those people in that chain to bless you. And it transforms the way that, that you receive things. Think too about your own part of the chain. Now if you've provided food for the, the, the meal, for the fellowship meal, that, that this has been a privilege that you've had to, to give to others for the glory of God. But the ultimate purpose of your vocation is to love and to serve your neighbor. To love and serve your neighbor. And that then takes us finally to the why. Why you put off stealing and put on work. is to love and serve others for the glory of God. Paul says it specifically. He says, so that, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So that he may have share, something to share with anyone in need. Paul exhorted the Corinthians. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, or set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of, of that which is truly life. Jesus said similarly, he said, don't, don't lay down, lay up treasures on earth where, where thieves steal and, and rust corrodes and, and, um, and a moth destroys. Rather, lay up treasures in heaven. And we do that when we begin to see that, that our work is ordered to provide us with an opportunity to love and to serve others. You know, when you begin to understand that, when you begin to understand that every sphere of your life is a vacation, as a calling from God, even your work and your attitude towards your work are transformed. And even the work itself is transformed. No longer do you see your work as a career, but as a calling. And as a calling from God. And so your work is, is elevated above wanting to be successful. It's elevated above seeking to get a promotion. It's elevated above seeking to get a raise. It's, el it's elevated above working for your own comfort. It's elevated above saving for your retirement. But you know, even your retirement is transformed. The attitude no longer is that I put in my years and now I can relax, but instead it's now I'm free to do a different sort of work. Now I'm free to be able to serve God in the church and in the community. 
But for those who are still working, that their work becomes an opportunity, not just to provide for the, the needs of their own family, though it is definitely that, but also to provide for the needs of others. And so giving becomes the motive of working, no longer getting. But the word that's translated here as, as share conveys, conveys the idea of not of giving everything away, but actually sharing some of what you have. And, and so by, by doing that, the Apostle Paul is here avoiding two extremes, that of, of hoarding up all kinds of, of things for yourself, and that of, of foolishly giving everything away. This is something that's just sharing with those who have need, sharing with anyone who has need. So the, the issue here then is, is that the believer is, is called to help others. They, they sense a real need in those around them, and then they share the fruit of their hard work. Love looks for ways to help. Love looks for ways to help. When you love someone, you're going to be aware of their needs, right? You're going to ask them questions about, about how they're really doing. Because you really care about them. It's not just your, you don't just say, how are you, because it's your duty or a, a cultural formality. It's because you really actually care about that person. And because when you have that kind of relationship, the person will be able to tell you, no, I'm actually kind of struggling at the moment, whether it's, it's financially or in some other way. But you look for ways to help. And that the first place to do that is in the church. Paul says in Galatians 6.10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. Do good to everyone, but especially those who are of the household of faith. As a church, we've tried to be aware of our needs in the body. And now we have a formal benevolent fund where, where a certain amount is, is set aside uh, from the, the unmarked giving to, so that we can help people who have need. But this kind of giving isn't limited to the church. Paul says that we share with, with anyone in need. With anyone. Not just your own flesh and blood family, but, but your church and, and beyond the church to the wider community. There are many, many needs in our community. Now, there, there is a... We also need to have wisdom. Not wisdom, not saying it's wisdom as an excuse for, for self selfishness or for not giving, but in the way that, that you give. And, and so... When I was studying in Toronto, we were told at the beginning to, to not, that it was actually by a man who had been a drug addict, he said, look, please do not give the drug addict money who asks you for money. He said, if you, if you give me money, I'm just going to stick it in my arm. I'm going to use it to buy heroin. Or in this case, I believe it was, it was, it was smoking in, in the case of it was crack. So it's a matter of, of not of not getting money, what we did is we, we developed, we had little cards, and so we, we, it was, our school was in a rough part of town, and, and we had people regularly approaching us for money, and we would say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna give you money, but, but I can help you out. We had a list of, of some of the different resources that we could, um, that we could offer, that we could lead somebody to, or, or we'd sit down to, to, to try to share the gospel with them and, and to help them, but, and, and to, give them, to give them food but not just to give them money. There was one, one time when I, I first started there, the, the school had a, was a conference, and, uh, and there was a, a homeless guy who was going from person to person asking 
asking for money. And I said to him, well, I'm not going to give you money, but I tell you what, I've got to put away these tables. And if you help me put away the tables, I'll take you across the road to Harvey's and I'll buy you a burger. And so, so he, he helped me with the tables and, and I took him over to Harvey's and I provided a great opportunity for me to be able to witness to him as I provided for his practical needs. And, and we, we ended up, during my time was there, we had a number of interactions. So we need to be wise. This is not just a matter of, of we have to determine what a real need is. My point here, determine what your real need is, not just foolishly um, give to somebody who's going to use it to hurt themselves. But the Apostle Paul wanted to show us the value of hard work for the sake of giving. He, he told the Ephesian elders in, in Acts 20.35, he says, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. That it's more blessed to give than to receive. We ask the kids, and I'll ask you, have you experienced the blessing of giving? Have you experienced the blessing of giving? Have you had the opportunity to, to help somebody who was in financial need? I know that, that, that we have experienced the blessing of this church in that in, in my own family. And, and it, it was a, a huge blessing to us as a family. And it was an opportunity for you to reflect the gospel of Christ as, as, as my unbelieving family members witnessed this. It's a blessing, more of a blessing to give than to receive. It's gratifying, isn't it? Isn't it, isn't it feel really good to, to help somebody who's in need? We know that our primary objective is, is not to feel good, but to glorify God but we get to experience the blessing of blessing others when we work hard and when we give. This is what was happening in the early church. Right? In, in Acts chapter 2, verse 45, Luke writes that, that they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing to the proceeds to all as any man needed. You see it again in, in Acts chapter 4 and 5, that people were giving to the church. This is seeking the opportunity to give to others out of love for them. It's seeing the needs of those around you as your own needs. It's love. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that was read for us earlier, Paul lifts up the example of the Macedonian church who even though they were in poverty, begged for the opportunity to be able to give to others. They, they understood that it is more blessed to give than to receive. 1 John 3.17, John writes that if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? This is what James refers to, a part of what James referred to as, as pure and undefiled religion. James 1.27, to give to those who are in need. Earlier we were talking about the great Canadian revival and the way that many people confessed to their stealing and, and sought opportunities to give back what they'd stolen. But what sin do you think it was that was most commonly confessed during that revival? Pastor McLeod was asked that question, the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, where it all started. The, the most common sins that people confessed were arrogance, self-seeking, and pride. 
arrogance, self-seeking, and pride. That was the, the most common, and I think it's probably safe to say that's the most common sin even in our own midst. I'm not picking on anybody here. This is true of human nature. Arrogance, self-seeking, and pride. He said that, that before the revival, people used to say, my home, my car, my firm, my business, my garden. But he said, now since this wave of, of cleansing and expropriation, everything has been handed over to the Lord. People understood that everything belongs to Him. That He has the supreme right of possession and the sole power to decide. These people began to see their possessions as God's possessions. And they saw the things that they had as, as opportunities to give to others and to bless others. And so it wasn't just that those that, that had stolen were, were not stealing anymore. Those that had stolen were now giving. Those that had served themselves now served others. Those that had loved themselves now loved others. This demonstrated the work of Christ in their hearts. John Stott says that none but Christ can turn a burglar into a benefactor. This is what God does. This is what happens when hearts are regenerated through the gospel and power of the Spirit. People are changed. Lives change. And God gets the glory. We've talked back in Ephesians 2.10 about the way that, that, that you are to work to do all the good deeds that God's prepared before you in advance to walk in them. Do you understand that, that your work is part of God's work that He has given to you to do? And you do this because you are His workmanship in Christ Jesus. This is your calling. This is your calling to, to not just to, to not steal, but to work and to give to others for the glory of God. Can you think of anyone who was wealthy and just out of love for God and love for others gave? Our Lord Jesus Christ, though we thought about robbery, robbery to be considered equal with God, emptied himself, becoming nothing. He who had everything, the universe, belongs to Christ. But he emptied himself. He gave it all away. He gave his very life away out of love for you and love for his heavenly Father. And so when we begin to do this, when we begin to sacrificially love one another, we are evidencing the love of Christ who gave himself up for us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the precious gift of Jesus Christ. Who out of love for you and love for us emptied himself and became nothing. Who gave his very life out of that same love. Lord, I pray that, that you would help us to see not just the responsibility, but the privilege that we have as your sons and daughters to reflect that love as we seek opportunities to give to one another, as we seek opportunities to 
work hard so that we may have something to share with anyone who's in need. Lord, would you do that? Would you do that in our hearts? Would you change us? Would you help us to meditate on these things and to be transformed by these truths? Lord, so that we can better serve you and better glorify you in this dark room. We pray this in Jesus' name.